I invite you then again, please, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as we continue our exposition of this very relevant, this current uh, epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. Our passage for exposition today are verses 10 through 16. Having addressed the single Christian in relation to marriage and answering the question to marry or not to marry, Paul now turns to address Christians who are married and to answer the question to divorce or not to divorce. And whereas his answer to the question to marry or not to marry was, it depends on the circumstances, the ability to control raging hormones, and whether or not one has been given the gift of celibacy. His answer to the question to divorce or not to divorce is clear and precise. The answer is no, except in one specific situation. Now I want you to pray as we go along because as you know, this is a very divisive issue. It's a very problematic, problematic issue for many churches, for many believers. The different opinions and various interpretations. We could only proclaim and preach what we have studied and come to conclusion on based on our studies and our prayerful consideration. And that's what we're doing today. Begin with verse 10. He is addressing married Christians now. And this is what he says. And I wish you'd follow in your Bibles and not only on the screen, although I encourage you to do that as well. Because as you go through this book, I want you to be thinking and praying concerning your own understanding and interpretation of the text. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, in most cases, all we have to say is here, what don't you understand? Paul makes it clear that his advice comes specifically and directly from the teaching of Jesus Christ himself. He's very clear to emphasize that. You see, Jesus Christ, on, Jesus Christ addressed this particular subject himself when he was on earth. He taught it about it. And so the Apostle Paul is now simply passing on to the Corinthians and to us today the teaching of Jesus Christ to the believers. Now, if you look carefully at the verses, you will see that there are actually three directives given here. Here's the first one. The wife should not leave her husband. Now this is clear and it is precise. It is not a suggestion. It's not an opinion. It is a command from Jesus Christ himself. And Paul says again and again in this passage that it is Jesus Christ who is teaching this. Now where did Jesus teach that when he was here on earth? Well, let's go to one or two passages. Look at Mark chapter 10 first, verse 12, verse 10. Mark 10, verse 10. 
Jesus is speaking now. He's addressing his disciples after making some teachings. And they weren't quite clear on. And as normally the case with Jesus, he takes his disciples aside and he explains in depth his teaching. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Paul, I say again, is simply passing on the teaching of Jesus Christ. And he says in the first directive here, the wife is not to divorce or to leave her husband. But then he gives a second command or directive. It's in verse 11. Or the same passage, but the explanation. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Again, what of these words we don't understand? If she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to a husband. That's the teaching of Jesus. Paul, even in this case, it covers the situation in which a wife does, in fact, disobey Jesus' command not to leave her husband. She can avoid further negative results in her life, Paul says, by remaining unmarried or seek to be reconciled to her husband. It's very clear, it's very precise here. Paul is saying that separation or divorce does not break the marriage tie, but rather provides opportunity for the Lord to heal the differences that have come between the wife and her spouse and to restore them to fellowship with him and with one another. That's Paul's teaching here. That's what he says Jesus has passed on to him. Now, the derived principle then from this direct teaching, and let me quote Dr. John Volwood here. I have a note in my own notes concerning this, so I'll pass it on. This is what he says about this. Quote, when problems occur in a Christian marriage, the resolution is to be sought in reconciliation, not in divorce. End of quote. And I agree with that. That is the Christian principle, way of life. That's the way it should be. That's the second command in this passage. The third command is directed toward the husband. End of verse 11. The husband should not divorce his wife. The husband should not divorce his wife. Notice, no exceptions are made in this case. He is never to initiate a divorce or separation. In fact, he is to stick to her like crazy glue. That's why he left his mother and his father to stick, to be joined to his wife. Paul is saying, that's what you do. Now, where did Jesus teach this? Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus speaking. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's quoting what has been taught 
throughout the years by the rabbis. All right? Whoever sends his wife away, that's also for divorce, that's a word for divorce, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Notice it's directed toward the husband. Because in these days here, the wife could not initiate a divorce. It was only the husband who could do it. But I say to you, this is Jesus now, and notice how the passage begins with a but preposition. It's a contrast. It's the opposite of what was said. So he is counteracting what was said before. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, everyone, except for the reason of unchastity. Now this is this version. It depends on which version you read as to what word you find here. And we're going to look at that. That's one of the problems. But we leave it for now. Except for the reason of unchastity, the King James says, uh, fornication. Makes her commit adultery. Notice that. Makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, it seems very clear. Again, in Matthew chapter 19, at the end, well, I'll read the whole passage now. Some Pharisees, because we're going to be looking at this in detail as well. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? See, the no-fault policy came, was talked about way back. That's nothing new. No-fault divorce. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. That's the word where it said stick by crazy glue because that's the word. It's a binding that can never be broken. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Now here is Jesus' teaching. What therefore God has joined together, let no man divorce. That's the word for separation. Divorce. Let no man divorce. Paul is clear. Jesus taught that his married disciples were not to initiate divorce against the other. This union was indissoluble as far as Jesus was concerned. Now it's quite possible that in writing this, Paul was alluding to a case in Corinth where a woman had in fact divorced her husband and walked away, or, left, or at least left and separated himself from her, and he is specifically addressing them. That's quite possible. He is instructing her then to remain unmarried or work things out with her husband so she could go back to him. That's Paul's instructions. I was just talking to someone this morning and they said one of the problems of marriage is today, nobody wants to work at it. They don't want to work at it. Paul says, you work at it. The principle again is that when problems occur in a Christian marriage, the resolution is never to be sought in divorce, but always through reconciliation. Never divorce. Now in Jesus' day, when he was teaching this, this didn't sit quite right with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Notice what he says in verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, 
because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has never been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, notice there's a different word, same Greek word, but different English word. Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, divorce was allowed according to this passage in order to check the sinful and inhuman way that the Jewish men were were treating their wives. Paul is saying that the reason why Moses introduced the concept of a marriage certificate, not divorce. Divorce was already in place. So Moses did not start divorce or initiate divorce or commanded divorce. He's dealing with divorce that was already there. And he says, now you Jewish men, you were so abusive, you were so inhumane that Moses had to do something to check your sinfulness and your abusive attitude toward the women. Jesus disallows that provision for his disciples. He said it might have been done then because of the sinfulness of the men. But believers in Christ should not have that attitude. So that is ruled out. The idea of giving a certificate of divorce is ruled out completely by Jesus Christ. If divorce is to be initiated, it will be seen as a deliberate and rebellious act toward God. A complete rejection of his mind and will for the believer in Jesus Christ. That's the point that Paul is making. Now, that's what I call the impact of sin. When it comes to understanding divorce. If you notice in the bulletin, I said there are two factors involved in trying to get a handle on divorce today. One is the impact of sin. The sinfulness of the human heart. and Refusal to go according to God's way. That's sin when you choose your own way. But then there's what I call the factor of syntax. And we're going to look at that right now, the syntax factor. It was said, Matthew 5, 31, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And I'll be reading these verses over and over again in order to make the point in context. Now, I use the term syntax in the sense that it includes both the relationships of words to one another as well as the meaning of the words themselves in the text, as well as the definition. Technically speaking, syntax only has to do with the relationship of words to one another, Brahma, as we say. But I'm including the idea of definitions of words as well. Now, you'll see the reason for this as I go along. But here is one of two texts in Scripture, and there are only two, and they speak of the same situation that give this exception clause. The other is 
Matthew 19.9. Based on the King James Version, which most of us grew up with, the translation of this passage reads in this fashion. I say to you, now check it out in your King James. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for what? Fornication. And shall marry another, committed what? And whosoever marries her, which is put away, committeth? Not fornication, but adultery. The same principle is repeated in Matthew 5, 32. The problem of interpretation comes with the term fornication. Now this is the term that is usually used to describe immoral sexual relationships between whom? The unmarried. Two unmarried people. Not married spouses, but in this context, it is used concerning married people. That's the problem. Even if a single person is involved, their action is called adultery when it is committed with a married person. Isn't that right? So we have a rather strange situation here, according to the King James. According to this translation, an adulterous act is called fornication. This act results in the man who marries another person to commit adultery when he marries her. And likewise, if, any ma if anyone marries a person who marries the woman who was divorced, even though she was not guilty of fornication or adultery, the person who marries her commits adultery when he does marry her. As to say the least, that's a strange state of affairs. But it's amazing how people read this passage and use the word fornication and don't see the problems. It's just amazing to me. It just doesn't make sense. I believe, therefore, that this confusion has come about because of what I call the syntax factor. Let me explain again. And we're going to be quite technical here because this is an important issue. And I'm here not to entertain or to excite you by words. I could do that, believe it or not. I could get you jumping up on these seats and everything and clapping you. I could do that. But I'm not here for that purpose. I'm here to explain, with the help of God, the Word of God to you. And that's what we're going to do. And so I'm not going to apologize for being technical here. I'm following the example of Ezra. Remember last week? He read the Word of God. Then he explained the meaning of the words so everyone could what? Understand. That's what I'm doing. So I'm going to begin a rather extensive, detailed study of marriage, divorce, and remarriage from a biblical perspective. I'm sure I'm not going to be able to finish by the time I get out here at 2 o'clock today. <laughs> I'm only kidding. But we'll pick it up next time. The best way, I believe, to deal with this issue, or these issues, is to deal with it the way Jesus did. And if I could deal with it the way Jesus did, I feel comfortable that whatever the result is, the result will be from the Word of God and the Spirit of God, no matter what reaction might come. Let's look then at Jesus' method in dealing with the questions of divorce, marriage, and remarriage. 
Turn with me again to Matthew 19, beginning again at verse 3. I'm going to read it. I want you to look at it. Because I want you to know the text. When we finish this study by next week or week after, I want you to have a really good understanding of this very complex subject. Some Pharisees came to him. What? Notice that? You cannot understand this passage unless you see that this was a test. They came with, with their own agenda, with a way of trying to trap Jesus. Right? You've got to see in that context. That means right away you know the question is a loaded one. Some Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying, Is it lawful? Notice, lawful. Is it in keeping with the law of Moses? That's the idea. Not just is it legal, is it in keeping with the law of Moses? For a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all. No cause divorce. In fact, I saw an ad today. Well, no, not, that's not true. I didn't see the day. I saw it three days ago when I was doing my research on this. Quick divorce in the Bahamas. This is over the web. Hundred dollars. All by email. Have you seen it? One hundred dollars and you can get it certified here in the Bahamas. One hundred dollars. Amazing. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother. What cause? Shall cleave to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. That's the end objective marriage. One flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together in creation, we could say, let no man separate. Now let's look at the historical context of this passage in order to understand what's going on here. Jesus had already preached about this. This is Matthew 19 we're looking at. But he had preached about it in Matthew 5. He had already spoken on this issue. Where he taught the same thing he is teaching here. In fact, that's the reason why they asked the question the way they did. They already knew his position. They knew his answer. If you read the context, you'll see that Jesus had just come into the area where Herod the Tetrarch was the ruler. I'll show you the importance of that in a moment. But they already knew his answer. They knew what he would say. The intent of the Pharisees was to create antagonism between Jesus and the people and the ruler at that time. They could do this in three ways. First, they could do so by having Jesus publicly opposed the Mosaic tolerance. In other words, if Jesus was come out and say, I don't agree with Moses anymore. That would cause a trouble with the Jews who what? Obey the law of Moses. You see the point? And they could be publicly causing antagonism between the rabbis, between the leaders and Jesus because they would be going against the teaching of Moses. And of course that's what happened. But secondly, they could also cause antagonism by publicly opposing the leading rabbinic schools who were teaching about 
divorce and remarriage. And there were two at the time, two prominent leaders, and their teaching is reflected in the New Testament. One was called Hillel. The school of Hillel taught that divorce was allowed for anything that caused embarrassment or annoyance to the husband. Did you get that? To the husband. If you, boil, if you burn the peas and rice, he could get up and spin around three times and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, and put the woman out. And I'm not kidding. If the man just, if the lady just raised her voice that the man thought was too loud, he could get up in the head, spin around three times, and divorce her. And she's gone. Right out on the streets. Anything that caused any kind of discomfort, any kinds of embarrassment to the man, he had the right to put his wife out to divorce her. I'm glad that's not enforced today. Shouldn't say that, eh? But that's what happened here. And that's what he taught. Hillel. But Shammai, he taught that divorce was allowed only for shameful conduct, especially adultery. So he was the hardliner. He was called the conservative. The other was called the liberal. That's the idea. Now the third way they could cause problems for Jesus was to put him in a situation where he would come into public conflict with Herod Antiochus. He had just come into his area. Read the passage carefully. Don't neglect those things. This is why you see the test was coming up. He had just come into the area where Herod Antiochus was ruling. And of course, he at that time were carrying on a relationship with Herodias. Herodias was the wife of his brother. So this was what we call today an adulterous relationship. Do you know why, G why John the Baptist lost his head? Because he spoke out against that relationship. Now here comes Jesus in this man's territory. So if the Jews could get him, the Pharisees could get him to say what John said, maybe Jesus could lose his head too. So you have to see all that. This was the test. This is a situation here. You've got to see how this was a rigged situation. Now the reason for the difference of interpretation of divorce, whether it should only be for adultery or whether it be for any cause, was because of the interpretation of a passage. So it still goes on today. And here's a passage of scripture that caused the division. Deuteronomy chapter 24 Verses 1 through 4. Let me read the passage for you. And listen carefully. Follow in your own Bibles. If a man marries a woman. And by the way, for those of you who are grammatically inclined to know. Look at the if and then. In other words, this happens, then something else happens. All right? The if and then. If a man marries a woman and she does not please him. Because he has found something offensive in her. Notice that. Then he may draw up a divorce document, give it to her, and evict her from his house. His house. When she has left him, she may go and become someone else's wife. But she had to have that divorce document or she couldn't do it. Most of the cases, and this is the reason why Jesus got on them, these women were left destitute because they didn't have a bill of divorcement. If the second husband rejects her and then divorces her, then gives her papers and evicts her from his house 
Or if the second husband who marries her dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not permitted to remarry her after she has become ritually impure. For that is an offense to the Lord. You must not bring guilt on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. That's the passage that caused the conflict and the division between the two rabbinic schools. Now here's some observations, and I'm going through this quickly. Both rabbinic schools took this as a basis for divorce, but for different reasons. Let's look at the passage the way Jesus did. First, the passage does not command divorce, but simply acknowledges its practice. The Sadducees were trying to imply that the passage said you had to get divorced, and Moses commanded it. That's not true. Moses recognized that divorce was present, but he did not command divorce. He simply recognizes its practice. Secondly, the law that was given in this passage, the command, concerns the, prohib the prohibition of a wife returning to her originally divorced husband if her second husband also divorces her or he dies. That was the focus of the command, not divorce. In other words, the point of the passage was not to teach anything about divorce, but to teach what you should do in the case of remarriage. The focus was on remarriage, not divorce. And we missed that. And that's one of the problems for the misinterpretation. That's what Jesus pointed out to them as well. In other words, the passage prohibits remarriage to an original spouse if a divorce was the cause of the broken marriage and the spouse had remarried a third party. It does not command divorce as the Pharisees claimed it did. Jesus is correcting them. Now, let's look at the debate a little more closely. Very important here again. Let's go back to Jesus and the debate. And there are different rounds, at least three rounds of debate where Jesus interacts. Let's look at one of them, before, one or two before we close. Verse 3 of Matthew 19. The Pharisees first question to Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? I want to emphasize this is a legal question having to do with the law of Moses. This emphasizes the Jewish context. Why am I emphasizing this? Because it's going to help us to understand what that word is that is translated fornication in the King James. It's a Jewish context talking about the Jewish law. Any cause at all, that reflects the popular but mistaken view of Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 as taught by Hillel. And Jesus is saying that's wrong right out. Notice carefully. They asked about divorce. But now notice Jesus' response. And he answered and said, have you not read? That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man divorce. 
They asked about divorce. Jesus spoke about marriage. Did you see that? Jesus didn't talk about divorce. He spoke about marriage. In fact, Jesus bypasses Moses' permission and goes back to Genesis chapter 2, 24. God's divine decree dealing not with divorce but with the indissolubility of the marriage union. He doesn't even address divorce. He was saying that God had not changed his view on marriage since it was established in the Garden of Eden in spite of Moses' introduction of a certificate of divorce. God still stood on the same principle he made at the beginning. No separation. Marriage is an indissoluble union between a man and a woman becoming one flesh. He didn't change his mind. Carefully now, notice carefully, listen carefully. The certificate that Moses approved of and commanded did not command or authorize divorce. It was a means of lessening the abuse of sinful men toward their wives, which allowed wrongfully divorced women not to be regarded as prostitutes and avoid becoming destitute by remarrying if possible. That's why Moses introduced the bill. To take away some of the pain from the women who were divorced so callously by the men. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, you don't even think about that. That's what he's saying. You don't go that route. They should not even think about the sinful deed of divorcing their wives. Except for this one specific course. Another thing before we continue. You see the phrase, what God has joined together? Right? That refers to the essence and nature of the institution of the marriage itself. This isn't talking about the wedding ceremony. That's not, he's not saying, you know, a wedding ceremony you had. Uh, God, could, you can't break up. He's not talking about. He's talking about the essence of marriage, not the ceremony. Jesus rejects the concept of divorce outright for believers. It is incompatible with the meaning of marriage. You cannot be married in the sense Jesus and God the Father describes it and still have a divorce. One is indissoluble. The other, you could change any time you want. You just don't go together. That's what he's saying here. The point is this. Jesus went back to the true meaning and essence of the marriage union. It is indissoluble. This is a creation ordinance applicable to everyone for all time. The marriage union is one and the same for believers as well as for unbelievers. Here then is the important principle we can derive from Jesus' teaching regarding divorce. Here's the principle that I've derived as I studied this. Before we can understand the nature of divorce, we must first of all understand the nature of the marriage union. Did you get that? Before we can understand the nature of divorce, we must first understand the nature of the marriage union. When we do understand the nature of the marriage union, the questions that we normally have regarding divorce would not even arise. Would not even arise. 
Because if a union is constituted indissoluble by God, then it cannot be dissolved by man. That's what Jesus said. What God has joined together, let no man divorce. Now let's go back briefly to the conniving Pharisees. The second round. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, this is how it's put in Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then it goes on verse 31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here's my point. Notice verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is dealing in the passage with what adultery is. He is describing what it is that constitutes adultery. We miss that when we talk about this passage. That's why he answers the Pharisees the way they did. There are two separate statements in this passage in Matthew 5.32 with two different subjects and consequences. First, he says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. This one, the one who divorces his wife without the cause of unchastity, he makes his divorce made commit adultery. That's prohibited. Jesus says that's one way of committing adultery. Second, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He's talking about someone else now. The one who marries the woman who is divorced without a just cause, unchastity, fornication, whatever it may be, he commits adultery, which is also prohibited. But Jesus is describing what it is that constitutes adultery. Divorcing a person without this cause is adultery. A person who marries that person commits adultery. That's what he's doing, describing what is adultery. Notice, the focus, I say, is on the committing of adultery by their actions. The issue then is the cause for Adultery, not divorce. It's amazing how we have mis, in my opinion, misrepresented this text. We have only focused on divorce and not what the text is talking about. We have missed the intent of the author and put our own intent within the context. And therefore, we've come up with our own interpretation. So Jesus is actually dealing with the issue of adultery and citing examples of what constitutes that sin. And is teaching that remarriage after divorce is an act of adultery for both parties. That's what he's doing. This is the main focus of the passage, not divorce. But rather, it's remarriage after divorce. So Jesus is not talking about divorce as much as he's talking about remarriage. Now, here's a shocker. I guess you've had some shocks already. 
But here's a shocker for all those who have adopted the unexamined, passed-down folk theology concerning divorce. I'm being mean there. But let me say it again. Here's a shocker for all those who have adopted the unexamined, passed-down folk theology concerning divorce. What do I mean by that? We have simply accepted things we've heard without examining it ourselves. We're living out other people's convictions rather than our own. I'm saying you got to stop that. If you're going to grow as believers, you got to live out your own convictions. Not my convictions, your own convictions. And the only way you can do that is if you study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman who needed not to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of God. All right, but here's the shocker. Jesus is saying that although divorce is legally okay for one specific cause, unchastity, fornication, now the Greek word is porneia. We're going to come back to that. He's saying that although divorce is legally okay for one specific cause, remarriage by or to a divorced person is never okay. It is always adultery. It's always adultery. That's the passage teaching. Look at it carefully. So his focus is not on divorce, but on remarriage. Now please, before you go ahead and put remarriage or adultery in the category of unforgivable sins like we like to do, we like to do it with homosexual as well, and therefore we see ourselves much better than the homosexual person, much better than the person who's divorced or remarried, because boy, that's a sin God hates. Remember that? And before you go ahead and fall into that sinful attitude, please be reminded that sin is sin. And that God, through Jesus Christ, forgives all sin. All sin is an abomination to God. I challenge you to do a concordant study of the word abomination. And you'll find that every sin is called an abomination in Scripture. Every sin. Lying, stealing, taking the name of God in vain, jealousy, pride, backbiting. All of these things are called abomination in the Word of God. All of them. So don't get too holy here. When we're looking at this. Let me just give you one or two examples. Deuteronomy 25, 16. All who cheat with dishonest weights and measures are detestable to the Lord your God. That's the word abomination. The King James says hate. God actually says he hates these people who do this. Now, divorce and remarriage people not mentioned here. You know who it is? Business people who cheat the customers. That's what he's talking about. Employers who don't pay the employees what they should. Employees, business people who mark up way more than they should. This is what he says. It's an abomination. Here's another one. Proverbs 6.16. There are six things the Lord hates. See, not only one. Well, he goes on. No, seven. Actually, there are many more than that. What is it? He hates. My version said detest. He hates what? Haughty eyes. 
That's pride. That's what he's talking about. Pride. Covetousness. Looking at things that you want to possess yourself. Or looking at yourself as being better than others. God hates it. Lying tongue. Backbiting. Assassinating another person's character. See that? God hates it. Hands that kill the innocent. A heart that plods. Hands that kill the innocent. A heart that plots evil. Feet that race to do wrong. You have the eye of someone doing the plotting and somebody else carrying it out. All this thing is, hey, any kind of evil deeds that you can plot or anything you can do, God hates. God hates. False witness who pours out lies. A person who sows discord amongst his brethren. God hates. Every time you cause a division, every time you cause a little split, a little click here, God hates it. God hates it. He doesn't only hate divorce. He hates all of those things. So don't put ourselves in a little sealed cabinet over here. We better than the homosexual. We better than the person who is remarried. The person who is... No, no. We're all. We're all under the same condemnation. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Please remember that. Do not become a Pharisee. So be careful how you... And I put ourselves in the separate category of special sinners because we have not committed adultery, we have not been divorced, we are not married, or we are not homosexual or whatever. Listen, you are stealing from the government or from your customers, your employees, your employees are all abomination in the sight of God. So make sure you get this right, what he's talking about here. We just happen to be focusing on this issue of divorce and remarriage this morning. We're going to be talking about pride and all these things later on. But we're just focusing on this one now. We've already covered the sins of divisiveness, jealousy, selfishness already in this, past, in this book. And all of these are just as abominable in the sight of God as adultery caused by divorce or remarriage. And all of them are and can be cleansed by the same blood of Jesus Christ. The same blood. Jesus does not have a blood kind of a, a certain quality of blood for your sin and another quality of blood for this sin is over here. No, 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 no. It's the same blood. Amen. Enough said. I hope. We're going to move on to Jesus' handling of this issue with the second question next time, Lord willing. But I trust this will encourage you to read your scriptures more and study it more. And come out next week, Lord willing, with your pencils and your questions. Because in the evening, we'll have an open... In fact, tonight, we'll have some talking about this as well. Bow with me, please, in a word of prayer. Father, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for the fact that this is what we breathe. The word of God. It sustains our soul. It feeds our mind. It guides our life. Help us to be more diligent students. But Father, especially today we pray that if there's anyone here who personally 
in any way involved with these situations so that you might minister to them in a very loving and careful way. And maybe do the same. For, forgive us, Father, for putting different people into different categories or levels of, sin, of spirituality because of the type of sins they commit. Help us, our Father, to be like Jesus, who says to all, to come unto me, come unto me, to learn of me, take my yoke upon you, I'll give you rest. Father, we pray that you might cause us to be Christ-like in all of our relationships. And help us, we pray, to lean heavily upon your Holy Spirit to understand and then to apply your word. And all of God's people said, Amen.